Made in the Trade, Classic G.I. Joe, Volume 1. We're joined once again by Mr. Patrick Hawkins. Hey there. So G.I. Joe, since at the time of this recording, there is now uh, multiple blockbuster movies, multiple toy lines, multiple cartoons with the name. Even preceding this rendition of G.I. Joe, there was the original G.I. Joe toy line, which were the uh, basically Mego-sized. Larger than Mego-sized. Larger they than Mego. It was originally envisioned as 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 a boy's line. It was, uh, they were about 10 inches tall. They were Barbie compatible. And uh, they were, in the truest sense, dolls. Yes, I know they were the first action figure. No, they were dolls in the sense that the the main selling point to them was a uniform body with lots of wardrobe changes and gear that you could outfit. And uh, very popular in the, the right around the early '60s, kind of tapering off of the uh, the post Korean era uh, up until about the uh, early mid '70s, and then it kind of tapered down. And then for a brief period, you had the Super Joe Commando years, which was the same conceit of the bearded G.I. Joe, which in and of itself was a carryover from the World War II dog faces when they couldn't, like, shave. So it was almost it was almost a weird bit that here was a guy who was supposed to be a serviceman of some kind, yet he was always, like, unshaven. Mm. Um, so they had Super Joe Commando, and in that, it, they were trying to give it a little more superhero sci-fi sense to it. So he had a lot of light-up uh, toys to him, a lot of aliens, Terran, the beast from beyond, and mm. nothing can stop it, it's Terran. Um, and then they added more characters and more fantastical. And there was a Steve Austin, $6 million man ripoff character called Mike Powers, the atomic man who literally had, you know, a bionic arm, a bionic leg and, and a bunch of wackiness. So when did the original G.I. Joe toy line basically die off? Died off, uh, in about right. Star Wars basically killed it. Ah, <clears throat> Star Wars had, had, had killed it. And, uh, and of course, Hasbro had had the opportunity to uh, pick up the Star Wars license, and they said no, and, you know, they have eternally been kicking themselves in the butt for that ever since. Although, Kenner picked it up, and eventually Hasbro did absorb Kenner, I think, in, like, the mid to late 90s, if I recall yeah. correctly. But, um, so suddenly you had, Hasbro was, uh, after a couple of years, it went fallow, and then they had decided, let's bring it back. We don't know how, we don't know what. A chance meeting at some kind of a fancy fancy charity event with a bunch of corporate, you know, business guys or whatever. Um, in the bathroom, the CEO of Hasbro met Jim Galton, who was the head, well, basically was the CEO of Marvel Comics. He was one of the guys that seeded uh, everything creatively to Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter, one of the most famous uh, editors of Marvel. So he was really just one of the upstairs money guy that just, you know, ran the licensing and, and that was pretty much about it. Uh, they had had conversations, supposedly, in the bathroom while washing their hands, mm-hmm. saying, hey, what's going on? It's like, oh, not too much. We're, we're thinking about, Hassanville was his name. We're thinking about bringing back, the re- reactivating the G.I. Joe line, but we don't know how. We're trying to figure out a hook for it. It goes like, well, why don't I, I got some creative guys working for me. Why don't I just uh, throw it at them? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what they did. It, it trickled down. Uh, they brought into a meeting. That's when Jim Shooter was involved. He said, 
we sort of sat down and they basically gave us the job to bring back G.I. Joe. And Jim Shooter in his blog, he okay. says he came up with the idea of instead of just being one guy, G.I. Joe, why not make it the code name for the team? Mm-hmm. And they loved that idea. Right. And uh, so like, oh, yeah, go along with it and uh, did sort of design the characters. And uh, we will go ahead and kind of go off of what what you're working off of. So suddenly you had an idea line that was being designed by comic book guys. Right. And now at the same time, there was someone, Larry Hama, who mm-hmm. wrote and drew most of these issues. He wrote all the issues, but he he drew, drew about 90% of what we have, I think, in this trade in particular. But he was already working on a concept. He had been playing around with... Um, Larry Hama was a big military enthusiast uh, I met but him. he was already thinking of a <clears throat> concept for Nick Fury yeah and he wanted Shield. to do Nick Fury Jr. basically okay um, although I'd, I've heard some some describe it as Nick Fury Jr. and some describe that he wanted to do a hard reboot of Nick Fury and bring it in to modern era which modern era of course being like 1981-82 yeah uh, and the idea of a, a military special forces team um, basically striking out against Hydra or mm-hmm. for very grounded very realistic type missions and right. you go online you can see his initial sketch for it you could see yep there's nick fury jr and he's very duke slash hawk like there's a spooky looking guy in the background with a cloak and you just see his eyes and you're like that's that's prototype snake eyes right mm, there okay um i believe he was going to be a sniper of some kind so and this is just the this shield ju- team this was just what his his new gonna be the new howling commandos uh-huh and uh, there was a female character in it and mm-hmm. uh, there's a big burly character so you had what looked like a good layout and they didn't really couldn't really quite get it to work it was still burbling so but because of that uh shooter approached uh, larry hama um also apparently a lot of people didn't want to touch it either uh there is at marvel at the time Dealing with Lucasfilm and the Indiana Jones comic and the Star Wars comic, there nobody really wanted to work on licensed properties because it was like, okay, you write a script, your editor proves it, but then you send it to the licensors and they're like, no, no, we don't like that, we don't like that, and you got to rewrite it. And being comics, it's not like TV or movies. You don't get paid to do rewrites. Mm. <laughs> you paid per job. You get paid per job. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. That's why. And the uh, Star Wars was got stable, but that's why uh, the Indiana Jones series, the creative teams on that flip fast mm. because it, apparently there was somebody at Lucasfilm who was a terror, uh, uh, some woman who just did not know how comics worked. She was always calling for rewrites and issues mm-hmm. to be redrawn, and everything was a mess. So. Hama sort of it was the best of both worlds. So it was like, okay, well, Jim Shooter's well, Larry's got this military concept, and he he's a serviceman himself. And uh, Hama <laughs> Hama had a had a concealed weapons license all the way up to like semi-automatic submachine guns. Mm-hmm. He would walk into a bank with a with a briefcase with an Uzi inside. Okay, and he would like he would like open it up in front of the teller oh, and be like, God. I'd like to make a, like a withdrawal, please. And fill out the withdrawal stuff and had the thing over oh. and stuff. And yeah. And so he's taking out, he was his, taking out money from his account, taking out his money and, he, and his deposit slips from his submachine gun, from his seed gun case. And as it is. Yeah. And, uh, and so people are like, ah, you know, mm-hmm. and walk out of, have a nice day, you know, wink, Brother. wink. So yeah, this, this, this is kind of that's where he is mentally. Yeah, that's that's that was that was the the, the wackiness. So from what I've read too is that Hama, okay, original Howling Commandos concept was they were in an underground facility, literally and figuratively, underground facility at a military chaplain's uh, yeah. base, um, which is in these stories they are 
in the underground, uh, multi-level underground, a uh, military base, which actually exists. It's currently a, uh, a public park and uh, Fort uh, Wadsworth is in Staten Island today. So you can yep. go to Fort Wadsworth, which is where this story takes place mm-hmm. underneath that base. So apparently he wanted uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. or the Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D. to exist in the real world. And that would be the new concept for S.H.I.E.L.D. So now I it's know. funny because today versus only a few years ago, not a lot of people knew about G.I. Joe. Not a lot of people knew about S.H.I.E.L.D. Now they know about both. Yes. And they don't really know that the two are so closely related. And knowing that you read some of these issues, you're like, oh, wow, Cobra is a lot like Hydra. Yeah. Very much uh, this so. could be Baron Zemo instead of Cobra Commander. And a lot of that stuff is like, I really see the similarities now comparing the two. Um, and all the way down to um, Nick Fury's rank is Colonel and the leader of this group is Colonel. Yeah. It's like very much, you know, in line with each other. <clears throat> Archie Goodwin was brought in as well, too. Archie Goodwin, of course, was a, a legendary editor perhaps one of the most beloved editors in, in comic book history. He was just known as, as a friend to writers and artists. He understood story structure. And absolutely, he's been, he's been gone now for like about a dec- over a decade, but uh, truly no one has ever had a bad story mm-hmm. about Archie Goodwin. And Archie's contribution was he came up with the Cobra. <clears throat> he was like, okay. he came up with the Cobra and Cobra Commander. So he was mm-hmm. like, okay, let's let's make it this way. Now that could again, that's just literally just okay. We'll take Hydra instead of Hydra. They're like I'm blue and mm-hmm. Cobra and Cobra Commander and uh, like that. But mm-hmm. the fuck that matter is, is that it was was iconic and it it kind of set. Even though the interpretation is wildly different, we'll we'll get into that in a little bit too. Okay. <clears throat> now they, I remember very distinctly, they gave this big. They took all the stuff from Marvel, they gave it to Hasbro, and then Hasbro had an internal meeting. The CEO presented this to the son of the guy who actually created G.I. Joe, and was mm-hmm. still the family, I think, still well, the major stockholders to this. They said, this is what we're doing, it's going to be a team, it's going to be very grounded, it's very this, but that. And at the end, he, he got up very quietly and said, thank you, this is wonderful, I have to go tell Dad right now. And by telling dad, I mean, he immediately went to the cemetery where his father was buried. And he's like, dad, we got this great idea with G.I. Joe. And I think it's going to work. And everything else. so that was that was the that was the confidence that Hasbro really had behind the concept. So mm-hmm. much so that they were really to spring for something that had never, ever, ever, ever been done before. Yeah. An animated commercial for a comic book. Mm-hmm. This had never been done before. Even before the issue came on out, I plotted when I was I watched this. It was in, in the in the after school Monday through Friday like time slot, and I and I forget what I was watching because GI Joe and Transformers weren't on at the time. Mm-hmm. So, but I remember just saying this animated things. What is this? And then from Marvel Comics, I was like, oh, that's a commercial, and everything looked badass in it, and mm-hmm. and I just it just truly blew. And also too, it was on Saturday mornings. Yes. <clears throat> um. Early Saturday mornings. It was mornings. on early Saturday mornings, too. And uh, incidentally, it was a very sly backdoor pilot for uh, backdoor commercial as well for the G.I. Joe toy lines because mm-hmm. it was like, okay, kids, here's a new toy line. Come on up. Mm-hmm. We can't advertise these toys in these time slots, but we can advertise the comic book. Uh huh. So it was, I think that was okay. where a lot of the money was being yes, funneled into. Yes, I'm remembering now both G.I. Joe and Transformers, particularly G.I. Joe where you would see television advertisements for comic books. 
And it wasn't the toy. It wasn't the cartoon. It was an animated segment that was saying, find out what happens, you know, next in the current issue of G.I. Joe. And I was like, cool. At the time that I just thought that that was normal. Looking back, I was like, that is not normal. And they never see that anymore. Yeah, no, that 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 had never been done for then, I want to say there might have been one for like the Jim Lee X Men number one back in the early nineties. That's I, news to me. I want to yeah. There's a little trivia bug in my head that's saying mm-hmm. they did one, but the whole point of the matter is that yeah, and cause they and they did it for the for up to like the, like the eighteenth issue or something. It wasn't for every issue. It was like for every fourth or fifth issue mm-hmm. that, that they did one. Um, but it was yeah, it was just something that's really really kind of unheard of, kind of mind-blowing. So naturally, of course, I was really psyched to, to, to pick up the issue. But when you read the first issue of G.I. Joe, the artwork is very polished. Uh, Bob McCloud, mm-hmm. who only did the inks for that issue, gave it a really grounded tone because they were really... That first issue was really important because they had to really satisfy Hasbro. Mm-hmm. And apparently they must have, because after that, I think Hasbro was just like, okay, you guys know what you're doing, just let it go. Now, as long as every couple of months, we're going to come on in here with some new toys and new prototypes, and you're going to integrate them into the comics. Yeah. And that, of course, was the long-term detrimental effect of G.I. Joe, because mm-hmm. the first 24 issues, yeah. you know, and if we do like a second volume of this, we'll go in into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, these stories were very grounded. Right. Were very, very, very grounded. Very... Real, and, and it's in a wearing way, too. You have one issue that's like very kind of grounded, and the next issue or two that's very comic booky, and then it goes back to being grounded again. Mm-hmm. Hamo was really trying to find his rhythm in the first one. But the curious thing was that none of them, none of them, I think, were missteps. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like, let me try it like this. Let me try it like that. Let me try it like this. And he was really trying to figure out what's what's the rhythm here. And I think... Around, right around after the first year, it's like, okay, I think I've got this now. Mm-hmm. Along with the integration, too, of later when Destro showed up, because he was able to have some soap operatic power plays between right. the Cobra leadership and that leadership and everything mm-hmm. else. So, the first issue, <clears throat> mm-hmm. right away, it's it's surprisingly mature, because it's all about the Doomsday Bomb. Yes. <laughs> This is the Cold War era, folks. The Cold War era, and the opens up at the press conference of this one female scientist who, curiously enough, if I was casting her right now, I could cast Hillary Clinton as <laughs> as her. Okay. Because <laughs> there's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she is immediately kidnapped, but uh, she's a, a, a probably politicized character because she's a scientist who says, I was working on a defense project, and then I found out they're working on a doomsday bomb, which is literally... Like a retaliatory weapon that just kills everybody, and that's why I'm breaking silence about it and talking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And throughout the whole issue, characters who are the good guys in several scenes are like, "Well, they got on this island. Why don't we just blow up the island and, and we'll get rid of her and everything else?" And 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. the generals say it. Yeah, Snake Eyes says it. Yes, in sign language. Yeah, uh, um, and uh, Short Fuse is like, "Oh, mm-hmm. how can we gotta rescue a traitor?" And yeah. Hawk Hawker is in that one that issue. He's like, "Lodo, our job as soldiers to do what we're supposed to do." Mm-hmm. And the Constitution in America is all about, you know, it's like right. people who are gonna disagree with you. And mm-hmm. uh, but that's kind of really ballsy for like a a kids comic. It and, is. It's 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 getting political. And it's totally it's a it's a morality lesson and it's a political lesson because you can tell like 
the the members of G.I. Joe here are the right wing conservatives. And they're like, this lady is not being secretive about a top secret project. She's being anti-war and mm-hmm. and she's working for us or for the government. She's been assigned to a certain task. That is treacher- treacherous yeah. if, if she's going public and, <laughs> and saying these anti-American things. And they're like, well, why do we have to save this lady? And this was this was the beginning of Reagan's America. Mm-hmm. But we were still had we still had fallout from Vietnam. Yes, the, uh, Watergate. Right. I mean, it was it was it was an interesting time to it was an interesting time to grow up in. You should probably do it this way when we began to sort of realize current events and current history. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it now, it's like, oh wow. Um, yeah, this c- is an era when you had. Both hawks and doves turning yeah. on Vietnam vets for different reasons. Yeah. The, the, the hawks were saying, why the heck did you losers not win that war? And the doves were saying, you guys are warmonger, horrible baby killers that, you know, just have no soul. Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of these Vietnam vets, Hamill was a Vietnam vet, if I recall. Yes, he right? was. Yeah. So he was, he was coming from the perspective of, I'm a man without a country. How does that feel? And he's encapsulating this in this comic book. Uh, issue he does a really i know I, i'm pretty sure i know the way his politics swing mm-hmm. but he's always been very i think very fair yeah. uh to the most part of doing this way he's he has extremists on both sides uh and curiously enough one thing i noticed when we were writing this like the first major gi joe character we're introduced to is the baroness because she yeah. leads the as it and she's very much a product of the time one couple of curious things about her is that she's not really in the whole issue. She's not really drawn as hot mm-hmm. or comic booky sexy as she normally is. She's yeah. a lot more, a little more realistic, mm-hmm. and she's a lot older. She looks like basically. I looked at her. I said like she's an evil Gloria Steinem. Okay. <clears throat> um, and she's got that revolutionary talk too. It's like Gregor, hold these pigs off. She's always calling. <laughs> she's mm-hmm. called the guys pigs. She mm-hmm. calls Stalker a pig later on. Okay. Um, but I just I just sort of realized, oh yeah, she was. Kind of the first of this G.I. Joe canon character we were, we're introduced to. The G.I. Joe team is is assembled and told, you got to go rescue this woman, um, your personal feelings aside. And meanwhile, Cobra is like, ha, 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 you know, I'm going to get the information from you. Mm-hmm. And even she, uh, the the scientist, she's like, you really think that, that they're not going to like nuke us any minute? And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, no, no, no. It goes into the political aspects to it, too. The generals even say that. It's like, well, look, no, we can't. We can't, we've got to rescue her. we got to rescue mm-hmm. her clean. Mm-hmm. Because if we do this and botch it, everybody's going to think that we wanted her to die. So right. it, it's curious because the morality is forced not because they're the good guys, but because of political expediency. Again, grounded. Mm-hmm. Hannah wanted to do much so. this realistic uh, tale that was... Somewhat fantastic as well. Very, very much so. Uh, and uh, uh, another uh, Easter egg that was in there for a long time. The very first time you see the computer readout screen of all the, the Joe members you're going to meet. In the very, very bottom corner, with his face obscured, mm-hmm. but the name there is a name, Shooter. This was originally just an inside joke to uh, to homage to Jim Shooter. Later on, though, uh, I think about four or five years ago, IDW did actually go back and do a retro story about a member of the team that was called Shooter. Hmm. She was an African-American female sniper character. And her story was, was that she was a member of the team that the other member of the team, the other team members did not know about except Hawk. Oh, okay. And she was, they did a retcon story where she was in this adventure and she was like periodically like helping out 
other members of the team in certain spots. You know, it's like taking out somebody right there. So as Snake Eyes and, and Scarlet are sneaking through, uh, they almost get like spotted by by a Sentry, but sh- that, but Shooter actually takes the Sentry out, and they never know about it. And that's that's revisited from scenes <clears throat> in this issue. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, a little bit like, um, if you remember the Tribbles episode of Deep Space Nine. Yes. <clears throat> so it's got that total thing. They and shoehorn it, themselves, they retcon themselves into yeah. the past. <clears throat> and she actually ends up dying at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like that. Th- and just very, very recently, Hasbro just put out an action figure. Up, wow. Which I got sent at home. But <laughs> <laughs> So she was like, well, technically she's one of the original... Fourteen, you could say now, <laughs> right? So, uh, but I, 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 that was that was always one of those little apocryphal things that uh, everybody's like, "Who is shooter?" You know, and, mm-hmm. and okay, fine, it was a joke, and it was a meme that became came a, a an, an application. Yeah, this was the um, during the first wave of the toy line, which was very bare bones. The toy line hadn't even come out yet. Okay, it was it was, it was on the cusp. It was okay. it was almost there. The comic book did come first. I, mm-hmm. I, I I will always remember that because that was the first introduction to them. Right, but or, or at least I want to say that so. first wave of the toy line, the Cobra had just the soldiers, just the soldiers, just the so there were no there was no Cobra commander in the toy line yet. No, there were no vehicles for Cobra. Nope. GI Joe had every vehicle that you see in this issue one. There's the yes. tank. And the jeep, and then whatever they trail behind them. <clears throat> yeah, the the, the mobat, which is yep. the tank, the mm-hmm. vamp, which was the which was the, that came with clutch. Hal, the heavy artillery laser, uh, Ram, the rapid attack motorcycle, which is mm-hmm. rock and roll's uh, motorcycle with the Gatling gun on Gatling the Gatling gun, and side, that side was car. it. Uh, the and the flak, there's the jump, the jump, then uh, the jump jetpack, jump jetpack that Stalker uses even in the intro to the cartoon, which was a mail-in premium. Uh, eventually, so I finally got it, but uh, mm. yeah, they um. I'll never forget though the first. You know what? I take that back. The toy line did uh, come out around the same time because mm-hmm. I remember losing my mind at the introduction of the new GI Joe team and Infinity Trooper, code name Grunt, Bazooka Soldier, code name Zap. You yep. know, yep. and they're right a lot like Commando, code name Snake Eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, ooh, that guy's bad. You know, because <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, they only yeah they only re- and it's funny too. I believe Larry Hama pushed for the character of Scarlet. She was like, we really mm. need a female character in there. And, and Hasbro was like, well, female characters don't sound well. Right. And uh, and the enemy soldiers, too, of uh, it was either Shooter or Hama said, like, well, you probably ought to do like a figure of uh, of, the, of the bad guys. Eh, the bad guys don't sell really well. <laughs> and then they end up selling like 40 percent of, of the sales and whatnot. Apparently, the original um, metal masked Cobra Commander was a mail in offer in that first 82 wave. He was not available in stores, but... He was actually, he was later that way, but he was first available in the Sears catalog of Christmas. You could order the Cobra base, which was literally just a cardboard Mm -hmm. diorama type thing. It wasn't an actual place that was literally a cardboard thing, but it came with helmeted Cobra Commander. Okay. And then after that, he was uh, was the Boba Fett style mail-in premium with the flag points. Well, Which they do not honor anymore, And, um... Well, eventually, I mean, the the helmeted Cobra Commander was available in stores. I actually yes, bought mine in stores. But um, the hooded Cobra Commander, who's featured in this first issue, mm-hmm. not available till I think the second or third it wave. It was a while, and and even then was only available for um, for mail in. Yeah, I think it might have been eighty four. Like when the cartoon finally came out, then hooded Cobra Commander made his debut as a mail in character. Yep. Yeah, I see him here, eighty four. That's the third wave of the series. That's actually the series that includes Storm Shadow and everyone you you know from the ongoing uh, uh, daily series of the TV show. Mm -hmm. 
But going back to this, very interesting how they they set up this mission in such a way that they utilize all of this equipment. Like, how are we going to utilize a tank and a, and a Gatling gun motorcycle? And we're going to deploy them all with this weird uh, U.S. hydrofoil cargo ship to drop them all on this secret island. And you know what? And again, kudos to, uh, to Larry Hama for, for okay, I... I I don't think he was under any impetus to use everything all up front at once, but I think it was like, all right, I need I need a situation that this is going to be necessary and this is going to be necessary. And the plan that they give, I mean, again, I really, to me, a plan was like, okay, we'll disguise ourselves as monks and we'll sneak on in and we'll free the princess as it is. Mm-hmm. Even this issue, when I was younger, I was like, wow, this is like a good Play, as I understood military, I didn't know much about military tactics and strategy, but oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Go over there and attack these guys, and then when they go on out there, then we'll sneak in through here and go in through here. And then, of course, Cobra Commander knew about it, and he had his own counter plans. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it, it showcased everything, gave two, uh, two and three prong attacks. And a lot of the tropes for about the first dozen or so, or the pairings, I should say, began in this one. Uh, we saw Scarlet and Snake Eyes kind of off on their own doing sneaky stuff. Uh, we saw uh, Breaker and uh, and Flash, who kind of were a proto Booster Gold and uh, and Blue Beetle, in my opinion. <laughs> okay. Um, they were always getting paired off and sent off on some some wacky sort of mini adventures of their own, and uh, I always thought they were great characters and made a great team. And uh, we saw Stalker as the field leader, uh, something that basically was that way until like Duke came around and like issue like twenty three, twenty four. Right. And we then of course the early ones the guys sort of got parried off, but uh, I had the first issue, and there's a backup story that's not reprinted in the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it's ever been reprinted in one of the trades. We'll have to, have to check it out later on. But mm-hmm. uh, if you ever if you ever pick it up, yeah, there's a there's a about a seven eight page backup story. Involving Rock and Roll, Snake Eyes, and Scarlet, and uh, it might be politically, culturally sensitive now because it's basically about getting a MacGuffin out of what's implied to be Libya, and there's one scene where, like, Scarlet is just machine gunning down a, a, a bunch of like like Arabic army guys saying, "Come on, creeps! I'll send y'all to paradise." Yeah, so that might be why it's not around. But yeah, the for the first issue. Is is pretty dense. Uh, it was also the first uh, comic I ever saw that was printed on high quality Baxter paper. Okay, so it had that that glossy feel. It was not newsprint, um, hmm. and uh, yeah, I just as a kid, I just I flipped over it. Hmm. Um, and of course, had all the layouts and some technical aspects. It had had some of the file cards in them. Some great pinups by uh, Herb Trempe, who uh, became a big uh, was the main Joe artist for about the first like dozen or so issues mm-hmm. in and out. So. Uh, it was a it was a good knock out of the I thought knock out of the park and uh, it still holds up really well today in my opinion. And in the end, the uh, the outspoken scientist who is anti military gets won over. She realizes that uh, military people can be heroes. She learns a lesson, and the Joes learn a little lesson, and uh, that's that's it. She say, they and save she takes her. a bullet for the Joes. Yeah. <clears throat> she takes a bullet for the Joes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, at the end, she has respect for the military, and uh, the Joes uh, don't want to kill her for, <laughs> for treason. <laughs> I think it's a good trade-off. Yes. Cover Commander is very cool mm-hmm. in this one. He's very calculating. He's a lot more of the master planner. He's competent. Yes. Yeah, he is. That's that's a very good word for it, too. Mm-hmm. And... and I think the big, the, the one of the biggest weaknesses I would identify about the GI Joe comic in general is that 
Cobra Commander's depiction is extremely inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, yeah, yeah he's a, he's a very competent uh, sort of leader, and then sometimes he's uh, a frothing at the mouth. You know, it's like like Nutter, and then sometimes he's Skeletor, like ah, curses, I'm fooled again, mm-hmm. and then sometimes he's back to it, and he really they really can't quite figure it out. Right. Um, and it's odd too because you know Hama wrote. The foul cards, and he wrote, yeah. you know, the, the original, the original foul card of Cobra Commander, of course, was all about how he's a, a political and financial genius out to mm-hmm. destroy the world. Then I remember much later about remember the early double lots, the, one of the figures they put out actually kind of called out Cobra Commander as what he eventually came to be, being he's a he's a used car salesman, literally, literally, mm-hmm. who just created something beyond his control, and he's just kind of gasbagging and trying to <laughs> fool everybody that he's this thing that they think he is when he's not. Right. When he deep down knows that Serpentor or Destro mm-hmm. or any of these other like like characters should really be like a true leader. Well, I think what happens is in this first issue, he doesn't have those high-ranking subordinates that he eventually accumulates no. and as a result it's he has to be confident because he has no one to defer to yes his only second in command here is the baroness and she's kind of like the workhorse she's she's she out there said, in the field she, she in this issue though she's always calling him out it's like cobra commander if you have a master plan i demand to be informed of it mm-hmm. i mean she's you definitely get the idea that yeah that that, that she just the Cobra may worship him fanatically, but she treats him like a cautious peer. Right. Whereas she is not afraid to to call him out. So it, it's, a, it's a little more, it's not like, say, the Supreme Hydra and Madame Viper. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a lot more. Right. When, when are you going to tell me? There, there's, there's a partnership there. Right. It's and then as you get more Baronesses, <laughs> yeah. you get more questioning of authority. Yeah. Going to issue two. Issue two. Now here's the weird bit. <clears throat> this is the uh, North Pole issue. Issue two was extremely hard to find. Yeah. In the in the heyday of the eighties, when uh, about a year and a half into GI Joe's creation, then the when it really hit big and everybody was going gaga for the back issues, issue two was rarer than issue one. At one point, going for a whopping eighty dollars, mm-hmm. uh, which I caved in and I sold mine uh, when I was okay. a teenager. I'm, I'm, I wish I hadn't, but you mm-hmm. know, whatever. I was greedy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, even I had to find it in a back issue bin. Uh, my next issue that I read was issue three. Mm-hmm. So, and it wasn't until a couple months later that I found one at uh, my local comic shop for like a whopping two bucks. Oh, thank goodness, I finally got it. So. So yeah, this is uh, issue two, I think, just by virtue of like, the bombastic nature of issue one, and again, the rule of thumb is that an issue one will sell X amount, and then you want to cut that back by at least 40% for the second issue, because so people will try it. stockpile in the yeah, comic book Yeah, even stores. back then, there were, there were people who just buy the first issue and put them in a plastic bag. Yeah, even back then, there were the greeter types. And, and that was also like that. the time when you still had sales to newsstands. Yes. Newsstands, if they didn't sell, they tore those front covers off. And they sent them back to the distributor. Yep. So the distributor or the comic book company, Marvel, would be out that money if they distributed too many issues. And G.I. Joe number one being a dollar fifty, mm-hmm. as I recall. Yeah, uh, it was which, a double size. Which was, yeah, it was double size and the fancy paper and everything else as opposed to the 60 cent price mm-hmm. point that regular comics were going for at the time probably affected that as well. So, uh, so regardless of which, issue two was very very hard to come by uh and again 
Larry Hama was trying to find the guy. So what he did was he did uh, another sort of a Cold War story. Cobra is not in this at all. Mm-hmm. This is a straight-up international intrigue one. Um, it introduces his own original character of Quinn. Quinn the Eskimo. Quinn the Eskimo, who I am thoroughly convinced is strongly based off of the Japanese manga and anime character Golgo 13. Okay. Um, the personalities are very much the same uh, professional, like, sort of mercenary type who absolutely honors his word once given, which plays out in the plot of this where he, you know, it's like he conflicts with the G.I. Joe team and he kind of has him at a standoff. You could argue even that he beats him not once but twice. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of that oddness of, okay, you know, the G.I. Joe team is a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of badasses. And here are the strong members of the team. You know, we had Stalker, we had Scarlet, we had Snake Eyes. Um, those three alone were supposed to be the sneaky peats of the group. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't quite get the drop on him. Right. So, uh, but it's a it's a fairly decent plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the ending because the ending, <laughs> and I won't spoil it here, but the, the ending is purely visual yeah. and makes you go, oh. You have to put it together in your mind. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's like it, yeah, you were like, what's this? And then the penny drops and it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Anytime comics that do something without word balloons or anything on else. And again, as a writer, trust me when I say this, it's like, if you can just, with your scene description, you can describe something without, that's that's gold. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that the ending of that one, that final image was, was very, very cool. Yeah. And Quinn, of course, would come on back, but it took Hasbro a really, 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 really long time to make a figure out of him. Yeah. It wasn't until like the double lots when they're doing the retro uh, shows. Hey, we finally got a Quinn figure for you. It's like, yay. Yeah. So that was one. And then... Issue three. Issue three. This sounds like one of the more comic booky issues you were referring to. <clears throat> very earlier. much so. Very much so. This one is very comic booky, and I don't mean that disparagingly at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, but what you this involves a a robot attacking the base. Yeah, from inside, <clears throat> or one of those classic ones where uh, right out of the, it, the the opening is great too because it's right after the GI Joes have raided a Cobra base. Yeah, and uh, so even if you've read the previous issue, it has nothing to do with what happens before this issue. Exactly, I thought that's what the second issue was about. I read this third issue and I thought the second issue was about this raid of the base. So when I got the second issue, I was like, "Hey, what's going on here?" And I was mm. like, "Okay, cool," but. I'm down with that because I, I, I love a conceit in in any kind of serialized uh, uh, genre where I love when they refer to things that we didn't necessarily see. I mm-hmm. think that's cool. We don't You're need advancing to see... the plot. Exactly. It's, it's cool to know that, you know, I never need to know the story about the bounty hunter they met on Ord Mandel that mm-hmm. they talk about in Empire Strikes Back. Right. I just think it's cool that it happened. In the Something industry. has happened in the past that exactly. we didn't get to see. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, although there is a couple of our crippled things, like for instance, in the very opening page there, Breaker says, uh, yeah, a bunch of half a dozen Cobra Troopers were injured because of that thing in Snake Eye's boot. And we never, ever, ever found out what the thing in Snake oh. Eye's boot was mm-hmm. when they thought they had him disarmed and he used to like F him up. Mm-hmm. So at the time I wanted to know, now I'm like, you know what? Whatever I imagine in my head would be infinitely cooler than what right. anybody could come up with. So mm-hmm. that's just one of those, let's let it alone. Although it would have been nice to have it, you know, recurring around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, oh, he's pulling out his boot again. <laughs> yeah, he's got that thing in his boot, you know. Uh, and this issue really showcases the pit itself. It showcases the, uh, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. about, okay, we actually get a sort of a tour of the pit and the, the idea that it was supposed to be able to absorb any attack up into a nuclear strike. Right. 
So the pit is the G.I. Joe base in the comic books. Yeah. If you're familiar only with the cartoon, the pit does not exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is exclusive to the comic book. And this is what I described earlier, where it is multiple levels beneath an (laughs) army chaplain uh, in an army base. Um, but it's it's interesting. The chaplain's assistant school. Chaplain's is not just chaplain. Chaplain, chaplain assistant school. So obviously it was like okay, something that sounds so wimpy. They never expect that America's <laughs> most badass troops are, are in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's curious too because like I think Hama really tried to again make it realistic. And then I'll never forget he was flooded. I remember reading later on he was flooded with letters saying that the layout he says about this could never work with a small nuclear strike. So okay. later on, like the pit was destroyed and rebuilt and then those rebuilt and Lahama made a real big deal. But okay, this is how based on how engineers who are fans of the comic told me how to work. It really works. So. Okay. Uh, but again, too, it's like, ah, okay, you know, who changes the wheels in the Batmobiles? Like, mm-hmm. At some point you just got to kind of let questions like that. Go. Right. But still though, it's always fun to do it. It's always fun to see layouts. It's always mm-hmm. fun to see, oh, okay, that that's where they eat, and that's where they poop, and that's, you know, that's where they keep all the guns. And so it becomes a very... Uh, I just love the fact that this is a recently defunct base. I mean, like, it was originally an army base until 1979, and then the Navy took it over uh, in in that same time, 79. And so around this time, it's, it's a base that's kind of, like, on its way out, mm-hmm. but it's... Um, it's it's cool to think of an actual army base housing these fictitious characters. Very much so. Underneath it. <clears throat> Very much so, because it's, you know, everybody knows Fort Bragg is where, uh, you know, the modern Delta forces, you know, hangs their hat and stuff like that. So it's just, okay, cool. And then it becomes a comic booky hook, of course, that Corps Commander becomes rapidly obsessed with finding the G.I. Joe base. It's like, it's kind of weird, because it's like... Uh, it's like he stops wanting. He stops wanting to want to conquer the world or do whatever Cobra is supposed to do. And now it's, we must destroy GI Joe, as if the G. typical supervillain. Yeah, as yeah. if GI Joe was again one person and not a team with theoretical rotating out phases and stuff like that. Right. So that's that's. But again, that's that's comic book logic. Mm-hmm. And because uh, Doctor Octopus went from robbing banks to obsessing on Spider Man. Exactly. Exactly. But you get the idea that he wouldn't have quite gotten obsessed with it if he was the pressure he was but again let's mm-hmm. we'll go on to the, that later but uh yeah it was just, we must find the it's, it's like finding the bat cave we must mm-hmm. find the location of the bat cave mm-hmm. you know? like why <laughs> <laughs> why don't we just kill the batman instead <laughs> instead of fighting the bat cave why don't we just kill him instead oh but there's lots of goodies in that bat cave we're <clears throat> gonna better idea why don't we move to another city where there are no superheroes <laughs> Issue four with Commander Wingfield and his survivalists strike first. That's right. Uh, Believe it or not, survivalists and militia groups are not a new thing. This is my first exposure to the concept. And uh, smaller scale beginning with possible apocalyptic endings uh, because Hawk and and Grunt go undercover and uh, join up with this group. And while Snake Eyes is uh, doing uh, reconnaissance on them, watching from the, the sidelines up in the bushes, and uh, they just find out, oh, okay, well, I figure there's a bunch of goobers with some military surplus, and then it turns out they have tanks, and they have nuclear weapons, and they're going to start a nuclear war between Russia and America, because survivalists and militia groups hate both of them, and back in the days, in the early 80s, uh, everybody still thought that you could survive and 
potentially survive a nuclear war. So that's the the crux of that plot. Yeah. And once again, at the end, Zap saves the day. Yay. <laughs> Issue 5 is a full-issue advertisement for the most expensive toy from the toy line, the Mobat. The Mobat, which was the tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> curious that it spends... Uh, it's an interesting issue. Again, it completely breaks away from the tone of the previous one. And that's, again, that's the common thread in these, these first 10 issues. The tone and the tempo fluctuates wildly from issue to issue to issue. This isn't just a tank. This is a very special tank, and there's a lot of new technology that's not standard issue, and a lot of interesting stuff that was new at the time. And the curiosity of the Scarlet being... Uh, her official role was counterintelligence, and even that was very ill-defined, is completely uninterested in it. And she's like, oh, well, computer technology, big deal. Ugh. Which I thought was a little off-killer character, but it was humorless. One thing I, I really realized, too, was that uh, Scarlet was was all business, like Stalker, um, and she could be a bit of a bit of a cold fish at times. Whereas Stalker wore it better, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe that's a very chauvinistic thing for me to say. I don't know. <laughs> and if I'm wrong on that, please, by all means, uh, you know, it's like, like, call me out on it if you feel that way. But uh, and yeah, the whole thing just basically becomes a, a curious scene during a parade where a bunch of Cobra troops disguised as a marching band catch wind that the tank is going to be the G.I. Joe tank. So they want to capture it. They want to squeeze the G.I. Joe members, which are going to be Steeler, who came with the Mobat. He was the official driver for it, uh, Clutch and Breaker. And uh, once again, they're going to find out the location of the G.I. Joe base. The beginning of this, too, also has Cobra Commander doing a very, very cartoonish comic booky thing. He's target practicing, and the targets are the cutouts of members of the G.I. Joe team. Very, very different from the Mastermind Planner, uh, you know, it's like that we'll see later on or in the first one. Now, this is like a Skeletor-level petty... I'll get you yet, G.I. Joe. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, and again, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but uh, it, it is it is definitely sort of different. Uh, Steeler is using the uh, high-res cameras to look at the asses of uh, the, the, <laughs> some of the marionettes in the marching band, which I could turn out to be some of the Cobra Troopers in disguise. So, yeah. Uh, you can't fault Cooper for, uh, Cobra for being uh, being cross-gender. And, no, they uh, got they got uh, they got women in their ranks. <clears throat> and then the rest of the issue is literally just Larry Fama just having fun, you know, like playing at the tropes of New Yorkers, and he has a gag with Ed Koch, and, and of course they're all like, "Hey, hey, we're get out of the way!" And the New York driver is like, "Screw you, we're not moving because we're from New York," and it, you know, <laughs> you can get away with anything in a movie or pop culture that times. Oh yeah, well you're not from New York, or you're not from Chicago, mm-hmm. or you know. One of my favorite goofy cover commander lines is when they're like, "Oh, we've lost track of them. We're trying to, to like find them stealthily." It's like stealthily, you idiots! You're a marching band running around Manhattan with a bunch of like assault weapons and anti tank equipment. <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, Breaker kind of saves the day with this habit of uh, being a habitual gum chewer. Um, Blowing bubbles. Which General Flag is always telling him, spit out that gum, stop chewing that gum. And then <laughs> General he pops, Flag... He is, pops one in the loudspeaker. Yeah. And General Flag was a character early on. He he was the nominal general overseeing the, the G.I. Joe team. And a curious thing, though, is that you never really saw too much interaction between General Flag and Hawk. Hawk would talk about... Sometimes Hawk would be the one giving out the orders. Sometimes General Flag would be the one giving out the orders. But um, I, for the life of me, I I can only recall once or twice where they're in the same room together. Mm-hmm. 
Issue 6, The Introduction of the October Guard. Yep, this one, it doesn't get more Cold War than this one, with the possible exception of, of, of Issue 2, but this has got everything. This has got the yeah the October Guard, which is the G.I. Joe equivalent in the Soviet Union. Um, they are fully fleshed out characters with personalities and, and sort of types and unique looks to them. Um, I fell in love with them. I thought they were awesome. And they were great antagonists because they were never depicted as the enemy. They were just depicted as the opposition. And this was kind of against general consensus at the time where, you know, you know Rocky IV and, and, the, you know, and the, the Soviets were really being painted as our eventual enemies. But this was an interesting case where they're after the same MacGuffin, then they team up because Cobra wants it, and then they kind of dissipate apart. So it's a... It's a good, it's a good two-parter. In issue six, of course, you think Hawk could be a traitor. Yes, he is a, uh, he's leaking information under the guise of Songbird to Cobra. And he's telling them the location of his team, the, the route that they're going to be taking this MacGuffin through the country of Afghanistan. Why? Well, we'll find out at the end of the next issue. And this is an issue, too, that uh, Stalker really shines. He shines as being the team leader, or the field leader, um, and he really goes out to it. There is um, a mistake in the issue, which still has not been corrected. It would, they didn't correct it from the original print run like 30 years ago, and even in this trade, they didn't print it either. When Hawk asks for, all right, here are the team members going on this mission, Grand Slam is listed when it should be Flash. Mm-hmm. And they've never, even in this trade, they've never corrected that. And there's also some coloring issues, too, with uh, some of the members of the team when they're, there's a shot as who volunteers of the mission and a bunch of hands in the air. Well, there's some hands that are colored as being African-American, and, and the only African-American on the team at that time was Stalker. Mm-hmm. So that's, and whether it was it was meant to be that that or whatever, it's, it's, it's that's either here nor there. But uh, a hand that is either belongs to Flash or Grand Slam is African-American, and that's... A recoloring goof, but recoloring goofs are pretty common with regards to reprinted trades. Mm-hmm. Um, more, a lot of times they don't look at the originals; they're just looking at the the, the uh, black and white uh, original scans, hmm. and then they re- tend to recolor it from there. Issue seven: The October Guard and GI Joe not so much form an alliance as much as a truce. They're yeah. like, okay. We'll deal with Cobra, and then we'll settle this up, and uh, we'll sort of leave it at that. But they do team up, and they kill a lot of Iranians So <laughs> along the way, which I just thought was, hey, you Americans and Russians, finally team up and kill Iranians, mm-hmm. which again, being a, being a kid that remembers the Iranian hostage situation, that was a scenario that I can't say I didn't enjoy reading. Right. Uh, <laughs> Hey, I was like 10, 11, okay? I was a little warmonger, it's a mm-hmm. Sumi. Um, and then that then that issue becomes uh, a bit of a part dungeon crawl, part homage to Indiana Jones, a lot of death traps. And in the end, though, there's there's several twists, um, several sort of surprises. Uh, and the, 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 the main thing that homage should get credit for is that it's some fantastical situations, but all the characters kind of behave in a manner congruent with either their characters or what I would think of as their professions. Mm. And these are all soldiers, and they stay on point, and they stay true to their mission, and uh, and the October Guard are no dummies. 
They are not, uh, they are very, very, very capable. In some ways, they actually kind of uh, make their way through the, the, through the, the maze a lot more efficiently and better than the G.I. Joe team does. Because mm. they just grab a Cobra guy and they just, <laughs> they apply pressure. And you can interpret that however you want to. And they just find the back way in. So, <laughs> In the final epilogue of this two-parter, we find out what Hawk's reasoning was for leaking the information to Cobra. He was telling Cobra where they were because Stalker's team did not have the MacGuffin that we've been talking about in this issue. They were actually a decoy. It was just some aluminum cans or something. The emotion on the face of both Hawk and Stalker are exceptional in these last two panels because Hawk won't even look Stalker in the face when he's giving the ultimate information. He's very stoic. He clearly hates the fact that he had to do this, but he also is duty-bound. Stalker looks at him like he wants to take his head off when he finds out this information. And it is so classic without needing any dialogue to explain what these characters are feeling after this two-part issue. And again, it's that if you can do it without words or the least amount of words, it plays off plays off really, really well. Yeah. Issue eight. Issue eight. This is this is one of my favorites. Uh, this is an all skate. Hama just said, "All right, I'm gonna throw everybody in, and instead of the GI Joe raiding a Cobra base, it's gonna be Cobra raiding a U.S. U.S. government base. In this case, they're trying to they're attacking Kennedy Space Center, trying to stop the space shuttle from launching a new satellite into space that will compromise their underwater hydro bases. And in doing so, they launch." Uh, a unique to this comic book issue vehicle series of vehicles which are the sea legs which uh basically look like war, uh, war of the worlds rejects they're these <laughs> vehicles on stilts that are submersible and can walk all on land from like 40 feet in the air yeah they're not like the it's not the atst mm-hmm. the, yeah they're not even they're no it's the same idea. You've got a combat pod and these two leg things, and nowhere near these does predate it look cool. the movie Return of the Jedi. They do, and it, oh, but those were in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, the back, yeah. but the, but they don't look nowhere near as cool. They look right, very goofy. You know what it is? Uh, remember from uh, 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 what are the big like jackrabbit uh, looking things that they use in mounts in uh, the Dark Crystal? Okay. The ones that they ride on. Yeah. They look like robot versions of them. Yeah, they that could be like right. These big lumbering things. Well, those were like, four-legged, weren't they? I think so. But the idea is the same. Those look yeah. this big, and they're and they're on two legs too, which mm-hmm. poses the question of how do they stay? Never mind. Yeah. Because they get the crap blown out of them. Mm-hmm. And again, this is this is a standard sized issue. It's like 23, 20, 24 pages at the most. And Hama and Tremby pack in a lot of action. Yeah. And everybody in the team, whether they pilot a, a vehicle or they have a speciality, gets a moment to shine. Mm-hmm. Their presence and their 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 utility on the team is justified. And um and once again, uh Breaker and Flash are sent off on their own on a side mission. They're actually on the space shuttle, they go on up into space and they have a little thing they, they gotta do on it up there. So and at the very end Zap saves the day again. The unsung hero <laughs> of early G.I. Joe canon, which again, when I reread these things, the pattern emerged like, oh my God, Zap's like, Zap's like, he, he should be lauded up there with like snake eyes and mm-hmm. scarlet and, and, but he's always, he should be a B character at least. And, but he's always like a CD lister on the team. It's like, this is wrong. Yeah. Kids running around the playground don't really respect. It's like, well, anyone could shoot that bazooka. 
Yeah, but he does everything else though. That's, yeah, that's the that's the real wacky. Disarms thing. nuclear warheads. So it's a it's a that's a it's a, it's a fun issue. It's a really fun issue. Although again, the uh, Hama cribs the pop culture uh, phrase. Hey, let's be careful out there. From the TV series Hill Street Blues, which was very prevalent at the time, and uh, when I read it at, at first as a kid, I was like, "Oh, come on, really?" <laughs> you know. Issue nine, which has a blurb on its cover, "If Scarlet Should Fail, War," <laughs> and then inside it's titled "The Diplomat." Yes, issue nine is like an episode of Charlie's Angels. It's got that feel to it where it's a it's a very insular sort of espionage based story. Um, it's not one of my favorites. Uh, it does put Scarlet at the forefront because it's basically her with clutch and toe kind of as a semi comedic, you know, sidekick sort of like character. And um, they're all over these exotic locations. You got them in the beach. Yes. Then they're fighting Cobra in a high rise hanging from helicopters there are a lot of like kind of spy uh espionage tropes at the yeah. time in there too there's the british information broker they go to mm-hmm. and then there's the implication that stalker and snake eyes go to i guess a french uh whorehouse <laughs> you want to talk to lola soldier uh, room seven ah, and there's this this rather strumpety looking french woman with big prostitute hair and you know she's got bad morals because she's smoking a cigarette mm-hmm. so uh the, the only que- the only quibble about i've had about that is that uh, cobra commander sort of reveals the plot twist mm-hmm. before it happens and it's like the plot twist should have happened and then cobra commander should have like said oh well, as you know by now um x y and z is happening and blah 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 and it's like uh, yeah it doesn't it's, 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 it's an odd pacing thing. Again, more of these tropes. We've got them on a mountain road, a winding mountain road, shooting at a helicopter in the sky. Then eventually they're on a ski slope. Mm-hmm. Scarlet's skiing while, you know, evading enemy fire. And yeah, a lot of a, a lot of James Bond sort of elements to it, too. I mean, you know, the ski slopes and stuff like that. And uh, Mike Vosberg was got horribly off model with Snake Eyes because there's one panel where Snake Eyes is drawn his visor looks like a cyclops like original jack kirby like cyclops yeah yeah it's literally it's a glass thin glass pate across his head so it looks he looks like cyclops with wearing a welding visor without without a... the mouth uh piece open up to it it's mm-hmm. it's very it's very off-putting to be yeah. honest it really does not does not it's not aesthetically pleasing. But in the rest of the book, he's got his old glasses. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a bit of an oddball. Yeah. That's always a weird thing, too, about uh, first edition of Snake Eyes. Sometimes it, in the Russ Heath era, it looks like he drew him with like wraparound sunglasses. Okay. And then some, but early on, though, in these issues, it looks like he's got some kind of goggles on. Mm. So nobody could ever really quite kind of like figure it out uh, mm-hmm. correctly kind of like kind of like the mystery of wolverine's hair you know how is it <laughs> how does it stand up and and again that's that that's just something i mean i've got a, i've got every about every snake eyes figure ever made and a couple snake eyes statues and even i'm just sort of like it but i will go on record as saying i will always prefer the first edition of snake eyes yeah me too. as opposed to the the weird visor the, the triangle visor thing yeah. which i think makes even less sense mm-hmm. in my opinion and it's like Jordy laforge's thing but like to a 
different degree. Because nobody's ever really been able to explain to me how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, apparently it's supposed to be. The last I had seen was that apparently it's supposed to be like spaces in between it, where it's not even it. it it's just like a grading almost. Yeah. So yeah. At first, I thought, oh, cool. I mean, I like, but I do like his. I did like his his weird scimitar sword, and I liked his bandolier of of, of grenades across his chest. Mm-hmm. So if I could get version two Snake Eyes outfit with version one Snake Eyes head, okay, we'd be in business. Yeah. Issue number 10. Issue number 10. This is the beginning of the greater canon or mythology that Larry Hama created uh, for the G.I. Joe universe. And uh, a lot, a lot of the mythology begins here in the introduction of... They mentioned Springfield before, but this is where they actually go to Springfield. Uh, Zap, Scarlet, and, and Snake Eyes are captured. They wake up there in a prison cell, or at least uh, Scarlet and, and Zap are, with this young man who we don't even, we know, we, later on we find out it's Billy. And Billy, obviously, of course, has a strong connection to uh, the Cobra organization, but we don't know that yet. <clears throat> he just identifies himself as being part of the Cobra resistance. And he tells them that, yeah, this used to be a nice little town, and then Cobra came on in, beginning like a pyramid Ponzi scheme, and... and you know, you could make, you could say that there's political allegories and 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 tropes that could be very valid today. But short version is that uh, Cobra eventually sort of takes over the town, and the last few holdouts disappeared, and everybody in the town is a full fledged member of Cobra, and they genuinely love it, yeah. even the kids. So not only does GI Joe operate in secret in the middle of New York City, but Cobra operates in secret in the middle of Springfield, wherever. Exactly. <clears throat> which is a plot point that that hangs very heavily in the sense that Scarlet and Zap never ask Billy about, oh, so where are we? You were in Springfield. <laughs> well, where in Springfield? Oh, Springfield, North Dakota. It's, oh, yeah. okay. You know, they never says. Yeah, they know. <laughs> he doesn't volunteer the information and they don't ask. Uh, so they have Snake Eyes caught. We are introduced to the villain Dr. Venom. Yes, Dr. Venom. Who uses his technology, the Brainwave Scanner, which is another ongoing revisited piece of technology in G.I. Joe mythology. Always tied to Billy's character, as a matter of fact, um, throughout the, the series. <clears throat> yeah, uh, character Dr. Dr. Venom, if... He didn't suffer his final fate, which comes in the next trade. Uh, I'm convinced they would have probably made an action figure of him. In which case, because he wasn't available, he was replaced with Dr. Mindbender. Because mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, if you came in later on, you're like, Dr. Venom acts the way Dr. Mindbender was always described as. Yeah. And the curious thing is that when Dr. Mindbender himself was formally introduced in the comics, he never really was a mind-bending guy. He was like a bioengineer geneticist, you know, goofball <laughs> that was, you know, oh, we're going to create the super Cobra leader guy. Why? Well, why not? Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we got to have <laughs> someone better than Cobra Commander. <laughs> why Destro went along with the plan? I don't know. Oh, yes, good. We'll make someone better than Cobra Commander and me. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait. Hold on. I only halfway agree with this plan. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> well, that's, that's right, right. 
Um, so um, they're trying to scan Snake Eyes' mind, and they're showing images like an apple on the screen, and they're reading the brainwave patterns on the machine, so they're saying, oh, okay, so this means apple. We'll eventually get through every image, every letter of the alphabet, and we'll know exactly how to read Snake Eyes' mind. And why? Well, of course, there's still Cobra Commander still wants to find the location of the G.I. Joe headquarters. A mm. um, couple of interesting little uh, pre-canical tidbits. Uh, Cobra Commander uh, stresses to Dr. Venom that Snake Eyes is an extremely dangerous individual. More eluding that more so than any other member of the G.I. Joe team. Which we all kind of figured that anyway, because he was already... The, he, he was already the Batman slash Wolverine, you know, of of the team. We had kind of figured that out at that point. But we'd never really seen him really shine. And this is where sort of the beginning of it. And we see that he has a um, he, he has visions of his past that Dr. Venom is looking at. And Dr. Venom is, like, turning up the juice, trying to get him to, like, like stop blocking this with memories of your past. Show me where the G.I. Joe headquarters is. And, uh... And we get a blip of basically it's a plot device because he needs to fake his own death. So they use this plot device of, oh, this is where Snake Eyes learns from a ninja master how to stop his heart and look like he's dead. Yes, it's a big reveal because uh, there's a couple of good things about it. They're like, I like the fact that uh, we see Snake Eyes' memories through his own eyes. It's not done from as if there was a camera outside of him. It's not like he sees himself going through all this stuff. We see that a tragic background. Uh, we see that at a normal background first, then something tragic happens, and then something really weird happens, and then we see his disfigurement. We see that he, or at least something that we allude to be the cause of his disfigurement, which was a helicopter crash on a rescue mission, which at the time I thought was a strong allusion to the Iranian hostage attempted rescue of the late 70s. Yeah, it's which, described as happening in the Middle East. Which in the timeline that that came out was fully plausible. That was like mm-hmm. five years ago, and I thought that actually plays out really, really well. And then, of course, when no one's looking, you know, the memory of... You know, the ninja master, like, teach him how to fake his death. And that's when it's like, Snake Eyes is a ninja. Ooh, Snake Eyes is a ninja. (laughs) Now, remember, ninjas were nowhere near as popular or as prevalent in pop culture as we know them are today. Mm -hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had not come out yet. And it would be another year or so before even G.I. Joe introduces the Cobra Ninja Storm Shadow. Yes, which is one of my favorite all-time comics of all time. But that's for a further episode. Mm-hmm. But but that's uh, and the and the other thing that uh, big thing about this issue is that it's kind of weird too. It's not so much of an adventure as much as a I'm planting a lot of seeds for future storylines. And uh, the final thing at the very very end is the answers the question or at least alludes to an answer to a question which nobody really directly knew at that point. Is GI Joe part of the regular Marvel six one six universe? And in this. They allude, no, it's not. But it was always kind of a question. Because in the letter columns, I remember reading the letter column when they used to publish the letter columns about, you know, people right away, when are they going to team up with the X-Men? <laughs> you know? And uh, why isn't why aren't they a part of S.H.I.E.L.D.? When are they going to fight Hydra? Stuff like that. So mm-hmm. they made that. And remember, too, it was not unheard of for license get the micronauts crossed over into mm-hmm. the regular marvel universe right more than once mm-hmm. and i think micronauts still going on that time too or at the tail end of it so it was not unheard of and well I, transformers in their first four issue miniseries yeah it was issue three spider-man shows yeah. up 
So you've you've got that that continuity canon bubble, but in this they they decided, and I think that was a great decision to say no, it's not a part of the Marvel. The universe. the idea was that it is based in our world, so there is a Hulk cameo in this, but he's dressed up as the Hulk because the Hulk is known in the GI Joe universe because the Hulk is known in our universe, and at the time it was a major primetime television series. So there is a character dressed up as the Hulk to promote the opening of a mall. Yeah, which used to happen quite a bit in those times. (laughs) Malls now, (laughs) not so much. There's a a great website called Plaid Stallions, which is all about like retro, like uh, 70s, early 80s, like all this nerdstalgia stuff that we love. Mm -hmm. And the guy doing it, he's actually putting together a book and he's asking, if you have a scanned picture of you as a kid at the mall meet and greets of spider-man or hulk mm. or whatever please scan them and send them to me because mm. he's putting together like a coffee table book of oh like, cool all of it so yeah that's that's that's, that's kind of fun this so this brings us to the end of, of this trade and this 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 really interesting cavalcade of, of scenarios and tone mm-hmm. and tempo and all this ways that, that Larry Hama, I, I think, had, after the first issue, Hasbro was just like, okay, you guys got this. We'll, we'll be back in a few months to tell you what toys and, and characters to integrate. So Larry Hama just took this time to really kind of just feel out what he could do, what he couldn't do. And I really think it showed that, that the concept of G.I. Joe and the concept of a rotating group of military specialists could really fit into about any type of scenario. Mm-hmm. and work out fairly decently well. I think there are some issues like slower than most as it is, but I, I think that there isn't a story here that shows, yeah, that the, these characters don't work in these situations. If I had to do a weak link, maybe the New York one you know, with the with the Mobat. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I would say that would, that would be about really about it. And there are, you know, a couple of odd things here, too. Like, the cover of number three had absolutely nothing to do with the story whatsoever. It was a cool cover with them <laughs> running through the fields with their guns blazing and stuff, but it just had nothing to do with it. G.I. Joe versus the Ironmonger. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, what can I say? This was this was fresh for its time. Mm-hmm. It was was nice to have a clean and, and grounded continuity. There were continuity. other army books. There were other war books, right? You had Sergeant Rock. You had Semper Fi. You had yeah. like all these DC other... was still DC was still putting out their World War II sort of books. Right. And I think even Charlton at the time was still putting out like their war comics, but they were like real crap. And it, mm-hmm. it was they were reprinting stuff in the 50s, which was a lot of like outmoded. Yes, the communist menace is a threat to our door and things like that. So um, this was the first sort of modern take on it that, again, they didn't try to cross the line into the super technology of, mm-hmm. okay, there was no helicarriers and the shield agents and right. the super science or whatever. Everything about the toy line and the comic for those first two years, to me, was awesome because it felt real it felt real but it it skirted with fantasy exactly all the guns they use were Mm -hmm. the guns that i would see in like the gun magazines i would look at in the grocery store when my mom was on grocery stoppage i would i'll be parked by okay they're the comic books and the magazines and so i flipped the guns thing because again i'm 10 year old boy so naturally Mm -hmm. i'm interested in guns and all that stuff and it just everything felt real It, it, it seemed real Looking back on it now, no, maybe it's not so Mm -hmm. real as I thought to it. But again, I was just at that age where this was a comic that leveled me up. Yeah. 
this was a comic that 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 leveled me up. Not that the superhero comics were at some lower level per se, but this this kind of leveled up my 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 awareness and my sensibilities and how I kind of wanted a little bit more. You know, I wanted more rooted action with a fantastical element as mm-hmm. opposed to action with many many fantastical elements. Right. You know, I didn't like for one to the other, but this was a flavor I was really, really beginning to enjoy. Yeah, I think what's cool about these first 10 issues is, um, yes, it's rooted in reality. All the G.I. Joe elements are pretty realistic and they're fighting Cobra, who is also somewhat grounded in reality. Like they're basically just using over glorified helicopters and this and that. And then occasionally they'll shoehorn. You know, the weird robot, the weird stilt walker. Yeah. Um, but it it doesn't go off the rails like we're we currently associate G.I. Joe with. Yeah. Yeah. And I in 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 back then in those in those pre internet days, I you know, looking back on it, like yes, I believe there could be a sleepy town in middle America that literally could be have taken over and be this secret bulwark. Of an international terrorist organization, mm-hmm. I, I I I could have believed that, I could have seen that happen. You know, mm-hmm. nowadays not so much. And again, too, this 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 falls on the line of you know, why isn't Cobra Commander the most overly exposed like man in the world? Especially in the late, especially in the in the IDW years, where it's like, well, if we know Billy, what's your last name? <laughs> Jenkins. What's your father's first name? Uh, Carl. So Carl Jenkins is Cobra Commander, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> why isn't he? You know, why isn't he like Osama bin Laden, where everybody knows his name? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just and, and again, I that's that's a little deconstruction as it is. But there's some points too where I just feel like somebody should have come up by now with a, a, a retcon justification for it. Mm-hmm. It's a no prize question. It's always like someone come up with please come up with a reason why it's <laughs> that way too, and why no one's ever really come up with a reason too why Snake Eyes' name is kept secret. Right. Yeah, because clearly the army's got to know who he yeah. is. I mean, I, I, in some ways, I was thought, looking back on on, I thought maybe we're Snake Eyes was supposed to be anybody under that. Maybe you're supposed to visualize that he Yourself. could be, yeah, he could be any ethnicity, like like any genre, anything you want to, too, which, uh, as I understand it, the um, Halo, uh, as I understand it, uh, like a lot of the success of Halo comes from the fact that you never know what the Master Chief right. looks like under that. He, mm-hmm. he, he could be you and you yep. could imprint on you know, whatever whatever mm-hmm. criteria you would have right. or need to. And then, of course, later on, Snake Eyes is a freaking blonde haired, blue eyed Aryan like <laughs> everybody else. Like uh, Hawk and Duke. Yeah. He could be like, they could be like Scarlet has a type. Yeah, she does, doesn't she? All right, Patrick. Thanks so much for joining us this episode. Thank you for inviting me back. Uh, As always, this is a delightful treat, and uh, I've I've been loving the other episodes, too. Thank you. Uh, Doctor Strange with our friend Ryan Gelodi. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's like the the City of Owls with our friend Billy Billy Boy. (laughs) Billy Boy. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this is really awesome. So everybody out there, please uh, keep listening, keep supporting. Share it and subscribe. Absolutely. We're on iTunes. Bye.
Cobra Commander finally had enough and killed Billy. Hmm. He finally had the, enough. The brain scanner wasn't enough. He just had to off him. Well, I well, it was the I, just, I remember skimming through the issues, but I just remember like two Cobra guys like looking up, like someone there's like something was strung up, mm-hmm. and they were like, and it was inferred as a dead body. It was like they say it was the commander's son. Mm-hmm. Really? Whoa! Kind of as a show of force to be all like, look, I. I'll kill anybody, even mm. my own son, for seditions. Mm. 